0: We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900CHML.
1: Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Willerskin booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jen McQueen. The Toronto Maple Leafs were blown out in their first playoff game of the season. Surprised? That's why I am a Boston Bruin fan. Hey, hey, Here, hey, 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 hey. Star Thompson.
2: Man, did I take a grilling from those two last night? My wife and my son, both Bruins fans, <laughs> <laughs> laughing, laughing at me. You know, uh, they were the only ones laughing, the rest were booing. <laughs> Oh man. Oh man. Uh, good afternoon. It is 900CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Hamilton today will Weber on the board spinning the pearl jam because Eddie Better is number 105 on, um, Rolling Stones top 200 singers of all time. I think they, I think I know where they're going now. And I think this explains why Celine Dion is not on the list. All right. Let's move on. Feel free to jump into the fun. Love to hear from you. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. All right. Uh, you know it's bad when the first uh game of the playoffs and you're playing at home and you get booed. <laughs> you, you get booed. You get booed in the first period, after the first period of play, uh those uh in the arena booed the Toronto Maple Leafs. And 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 honestly, I I, I you know, I, I was doing the same thing. Didn't even watch the end. Why bother? Uh, how good or bad is this going to get? Uh, I, I don't know. I, I've just said that this team can have the most expensive payroll. It can have all of the best players. It just simply has no passion, no heart, no personality. And uh, honestly, I, you, you take the top three, uh, um, uh, Austin Matthews. Uh, you want to throw in, uh, uh, what's his name there, and the other guy? Mariner, uh, you know, they're, they're all great players, but they're brain dead. And you can tell when, you, when they're interviewed.
0: <laughs>
2: you know, it doesn't matter how good a player you are. If you're not a leader, if you're not a leader, if one of your great three players or four players that you got are not leaders, Tavares, I'll give you that. But the other three, like honestly, uh, Neilander? are you kidding me? Like, are any of these people born leaders? Are any of these people capable of walking into a room and grabbing it by the you-know-whats? Any of these guys? Because everybody who ever played any sport has always had a really good guy on the team, or two guys, or three guys, or girls, or whatever. But if they're not leaders, if they can't lead, if they're brain dead from the neck up, other than, of course, playing video games or, you know, scoring many goals when it all comes together and it all works without adversity. Beauty. Beauty. But honestly, there is no le- The three main guys on this team who are the highest paid, who are the best players, are brain dead. There's no leadership. Does anybody want to have a beer with any of these guys? Sit down, chat. uh, uh. I don't know what happened. Uh, uh. They're like blocks of wood between the ears. Blocks of wood between the ears. It doesn't matter how great your players are. If you've got no leadership, if you've got nobody that's behind the bench kicking arse, it ain't going to happen. And all you have to do is look at my family's team, Boston, to understand what that's all about. Come on. Come on. Uh anyway enough of that I've refused to uh even get involved until they get past this round it's not I'm not I'm I'm emotionally I'm out I'm done I'm done after the first game cuz you know we've been seeing it since <clears throat> My father was throwing slippers at the, uh, at the television set. All right. Uh, it's official. It's official. One third of the public service is on strike. Uh, and you know, it's bloated by about 30% since Justin Trudeau arrived. Uh, and now he's got to pay for it. Here's what global news. Kareem Gouda had to say about the strike.
1: Associate Professor David Camfield coordinates the Labor Studies Program at the University of Manitoba. Now, he says the federal liberals are in a balancing act because, on one hand, the party doesn't want to push this massive sector towards voting for another party.
3: But... On the other hand, they're also trying to set a a kind of uh, tone of fiscal restraint. There's a consideration where they probably face some pressure from other employers to not... Grant a uh, higher wage settlement because they know that you know a high profile set of negotiations like this. Could potentially raise expectations for other groups of workers.
1: Camfield says wages from non union workers in the sector have actually outpaced PSAC members in recent years, so the union will naturally try to use the high profile strike at tax time to push for their 13% wage hike, among other considerations. Adding that Camfield says an increase in wages has not been shown to worsen inflation, which has jumped by 11% since 2019. Kareem Gouda, Global News.
2: All right, and uh, let's skip the Prime Minister here, uh, Will, because he's just saying the same thing over and over and over again, hoping for a different reaction. Here's what the PSAC president had to say about where they are.
4: Talks are ongoing, but we're going to
5: stay out here for as long as it takes until we get a fair deal. We're standing here. For every single worker in this country.
4: When you when you try to repress your own employees' wages, what you're doing, you're repressing wages for every single worker
5: in this country. Sounds like
2: the Freedom Convoy. It's the Freedom Convoy is reformed. It's just the other side. Oh my goodness. How are we going to get through the day? We've talked about artificial intelligence. I think in the most, uh, in the last month, more than we have in, in a lifetime. And, uh, you know, at first you just think it's your kids, um, doing their homework or writing an essay or some report of some sort. And then you realize that this literally affects every single industry in some form. Uh, and they're all. Uh, industries having concern about this. And I guess it was just a matter of time before we saw this, a new song from Drake and the weekend, except they don't really know about it or didn't until It, uh, of course, went public. Two Canadian voices that were put together by a ghostwriter using AI. This song has now been pulled down off Spotify, but it was, uh, from what I understand, trending. To talk more about all of this and AI in the music business, Eric Elper, publicist, music commentator, with us now. Eric, thank you for the time. I hope you're well.
6: I am great. I am the AI generated Eric Alper. Eric <laughs> Alper really. is in Mexico right now. So I will be taking his place.
2: How do I know it's even you? You could you be you right. You don't
6: anymore. This is so super scary, right? Because we yeah. saw this a little bit when um, when yeah. massive swarms of political bots were used to spread propaganda and fake news on social media. Um, it had... You know, Joe Biden and Donald Trump saying things that they didn't really say that could cause confusion. And we all saw what happened with January 6th. So now they're kind of going into the later fair of fooling people. And that's the music industry. We've already seen a lot of chaos because, yeah, as you said at the top, there was a song that people went nuts thinking that Drake and The Weeknd did a long lasting duet. And it turned out that it wasn't even that. And the record labels are really mad and they're mad at everybody. Not only are they mad at this so-called person who created this, but they're mad at YouTube and Apple and Spotify and TikTok and social media networks and platforms because they want to put the pressure on those platforms to ensure that their copyright of Drake and The Weeknd don't go astray. So this is this is kind of really scary right now.
2: And uh, it seems that fans like the song.
6: Yeah. And I got to admit, though, you know, last week there was a AI-generated Lost Oasis album that they put, somebody, I guess, put the 120 songs of Oasis that's available into an AI generator and came out with a really good album. And actually, the lead singer, Liam Gallagher, was asked about it on Twitter, and he said that he heard it, and it was better than 99% of the stuff that he hears on the radio. So, some artists seem to like it, but I think for the most part though, when you're dealing with the record labels, they don't mess around, and they're going to be sending urgent letters to all the social media platforms. And we saw this a little bit When people were illegally downloading music from Napster back in the 90s, where they had no problem suing people, including 94 year old grandmothers for tens of millions of dollars for every single tune that they downloaded on the music ecosystem.
2: Where is this going, Eric? At the end of the day, is Drake phoning up the weekend and going, hey, maybe we should do this?
6: No, they're probably far from it because what the, what they want to do when you're this big, when you're Ed Sheeran or Drake or the weekend or um, you know, uh, Shania Twain, you want to control every aspect of everything that's going on in your life. You want to choose the photos that are being used on Instagram. You want to choose the musicians and the songwriters that help you write song and not having a say in this is really, really bad. And, and, completely fraud um so i don't know if it's going to kick around ideas um because now people are going to say well it's not as good as the ai creation is it Mm. so there's a really no win situation when you're these artists
2: so is this easily controlled eric just through copyright law i mean if the long arm of the law and the lawyers of of the big record companies come you know smashing down on this is it done is it over
6: it, it it could be, you know, it, it all depends on on where those artists stand on it. I bet you, because you and I have talked about this before, there are probably estates of dead artists like Roy Orbison or yeah. The Beatles or um Abba, who's not really t- touring, but they have a little bit of a, of an AI concert going on around the world. Um, there's probably, you know, the Buddy Holly estate is probably looking at this, saying, "Well, can we make?" a new Buddy Holly album out of this? Can we exploit what is out there in terms of visuals and video and songs and make it into a concert that's the one-in-a-lifetime lost concert? Um, So there's definitely going to be people who are going to be siding with this. There's not going to be a lot of them, though, because unfortunately, when you're... Um, When you're Universal or Sony or Warner Music, the three biggest record labels in the world, not only do you have a lot of really great lawyers at your disposal, um, but you own the exploitation ability for these artists. You own the rights to sell this music however you want to. And if the artist says, no, I kind of like this, Universal may say, no, you don't we don't like this at all because we're the ones that aren't getting paid so i think that they're going to try to put a stop to it but i have a feeling this may be the 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 earlier stages of just an absolute um bunch of chaos that's going to be happening when it comes to all stakeholders
1: Eric, we
2: remember when technology allowed uh, musicians to sample and many 20, 30 years ago, people were saying, well, that's not right. You're just playing other people's music and and adding something over it. Is this just not sampling, more sampling, sampling on steroids?
6: Not really, because at least with samples, you're using somebody else's material. And at least that there's a leeway and a road map to take if you wanted to sue Um, saying that, you know, you're using our our protected material for this new song. You didn't ask for permission and we're certainly not making any money off of it. So now we're going to sue. Because this is invented out of thin air, it's not really using anybody's music. It's using the soul or the heart or the feeling of it all. Um, So that's, I think, where the difference is is going to be um, a little bit different. But I will say, though, that there's a study that came out last week for songwriters in America America, they, I think they, they talked to like 1200 of them. Turned out that 65% of songwriters in the pop music world are already using AI to create drums and guitars and melody mm. and giving it to the real artist to use and sing on top of it. I think that's okay. I think where the, the line is drawn is when you start to claim that something isn't like this is a new Drake song this is a new The Weeknd song and you're using their likeness and their copyright name and infringing on those rights.
2: Eric Alper with us, music publicist and commentary AI into the music business uh, duet with Drake and The Weeknd except not really. Eric as always thanks for the time, be well
6: (laughs) Excellent and by the way, your and my duet is now number 14 on the Billboard Hot 100 just from this segment alone
0: I can't wait to hear it (laughs) (laughs) Thanks Eric You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
2: All right, uh, I'm reading what's in front of me. The Leafs didn't do so well last night. That's an understatement. When the fans start booing you on the first game of the playoffs, uh, after the first period, what can you say? Let's bring in Sean Fitzgerald, managing editor and feature writer with The Athletic and with us now. Sean, thanks for the time. I hope you're well.
5: I'm doing well, too. Let me start off by asking you a question. What do you, okay. what do you think you were doing in April 2004? Do you even remember? I don't. That was the last time this team won a playoff round. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's what people were booing. 2004, how old do you have to be to have living memory of the Toronto Maple Leafs, one of the wealthiest teams in all of hockey, in the most populous city in Canada, has not won a playoff round, and you basically – have to at this point be what like 25 30 to have living memory of that that's that's a heck of a thing
2: Sean, I remember, and I talk about this all the time, my father, uh, you know, every single Saturday night, it was a rituals, a uh, hockey night in Canada, and watching him throw his slipper at the television set, uh, and I mean, man, he's he was he'd been doing that since the 70s, 80s, you know, and he's since passed, and unfortunately, we'll never see any, uh, the Leafs win again, uh, how do you describe this, because I'm sure everybody's talking about this in some form, and what the heck happened, how do you capsulize what happened?
5: I mean, it's still early in the day, so I I think under CRTC rules, I'm not actually allowed to use the words that we'd otherwise (laughs) use to describe what happened. Is that correct? Am I I understanding that? No, go for (laughs) it. Go
2: for it. We'll buzz you if you get out of hand. Don't
5: worry. No, I mean, I mean, to your point, like let's just explore that context a bit more, right? Like you're talking about your dad. Like my father covered the Leafs for the Hamilton Spectator when I was a kid. I'm 46 (laughs) years old. Um, Like he never covered a winning like anything. I right? I think he, I think he was he covered them during the Doug Gilmore years but like you know my great grandfather was sports editor of the Toronto Telegram and that goes back to wow. the last Fitzgerald who's been on the beat who covered this team winning a damn thing. It really is <laughs> I think one of the reasons why um to, it, it, the fans don't even need an excuse for what they how they reacted last night. Like it has been long enough. <laughs> like uh to go out and to say, oh, you know, it's a tough start. It's a 7-3 loss to open the playoffs. No, it's it's been long enough. Like, you can react however you want to yeah. react. But If you support this team, if this team means something to you, you have, I mean, for the majority of people listening right now, you have lived your life not knowing what it's like to win a single damn thing. And that is <laughs> remarkable. So if you want to boo because they lose 7-3 and – Michael Bunting's, you know, very likely going to miss a a bit of time here. And Mm. um, the goaltending seemed shaky. And Mitch Marner seemed out of sorts for two of the three periods. Like, you're allowed to be frustrated.
2: Um, What do you think was said in the room between the first and second period?
5: Again, you're corning, painting me into this corner here, Scott. It's three forty in the afternoon. I can't say what really <laughs> would be said.
2: All right, let me I'm let me not ask even you sure, this.
5: I'm not even sure I could say that on most HBO shows. <laughs> um, but yeah, like, like it would be colorful. It would be a lot of probably profanity. Um, but honestly, especially after they went down, um, you know, three nothing in the first period, I think a lot of it would just be shock. Like, you know, the narrative, if you really go back and take a look and, you know, all these 48 hours ago now, um, that Tampa was a team, you know, again, on the narrative, getting a bit older, they've been playing a ton of hockey since, you know, they've been playing basically to Canada Day for the last three straight years going to the Stanley Cup final, that they were tired, that they're a good team, they're, you know, as close as you're going to get to a dynasty in the salary cap era, but the Leafs were ascendant, the Leafs had added depth, the Leafs had done this, and then you come out. And you lose 7-3. That is, that's a heck of a thing to deal with. Uh, now, again, it is- you don't lose a series in game one, but uh, you certainly don't make it easier for yourself if you lose in the manner that the Leafs did.
2: It's even more difficult when you live in a house with Boston Bruin fans. And, uh, they're laughing at you as, uh, they're shaking their heads and walking out of the room. Um, you know, I watched. You could be this- living
5: in a house with Atlanta Thrashers fans <laughs> and they could still be <laughs> laughing at you. And they'd be justified in doing that. Oh, man. Uh, but you know, I watch their team.
2: I watch, I watch Boston and, and they're ju- they're just magical. They just make it happen. They get it done. There's personality. There's passion. There's grit. Uh, and and although you, you might have uh, you know those top three players that you mentioned, are any of them leaders? Do any of them have any passion? Because when they speak to the media, as many athletes do, they sound brain dead. But I don't care if you've got the top however many picks. If you can't lead, if you can't provide that passion and come from behind attitude, you're not going to win. And it seems like we've got a lot of. Posers, a lot of people who, if the if the planets correctly aligned, man, they can knock it out of the park. But they just look scared, like they're scared little boys on the on the bench. I mean, is there any
5: leadership in this team? Is there any leadership from these top three players? There's not a lot I can tell you here. All I can do is say that I hope uh, whoever your producer is lined up as your next guest is a Catholic priest and that they are <laughs> familiar with exorcism. Um, because I think that's probably <laughs> at this point is going to be what's needed down at Scotiabank Arena. Like at some point, somebody somewhere has to do the work and figure out, you know, where the curse is. I mean, you know, the Boston Red Sox obviously had the curse. The Chicago Cubs had the Chicago curse. Cubs, yeah. Both of those franchises exercised those curses. Um, something here, uh, whether it's Harold Ballard, which would be frankly my first guess, um, something somewhere here has cursed this team that they have talent, they have Mitch Marner, they have Austin Matthews, they have Morgan Riley. they went out and they got Ryan O'Reilly. Uh, they have depth, they have anything you need. Um, but again, in game one, when the lights came out and they're on the big stage, and again, like since October, uh, everybody's been saying, you know, nothing matters until the playoffs. Well, the playoffs are started and here we are.
2: Do you think, how how concerned are you, Sean? This sets the tone. As you said, it's only game one, but man, uh, I think this, the fans said it all when they booed. I mean, I don't think there's a lot of people expecting a lot from this team at this point.
5: I well, think they've so already checked the out. I mean, not not to jump into defense for the Toronto Maple Leafs. Uh, again, for those who are you know not familiar, they haven't won a Stanley Cup since 1967. They haven't appeared in the Stanley Cup final since 1967. And again, to repeat off the top, they haven't won a playoff series since 2004. Um, but yeah, like, you know, they did the Leafs against Tampa last year, go out and just sort of win in a track meet in game one, and then eventually lost in game seven last year. So, you know, again, winning game one doesn't, like, it's, it's a best of seven. You got to win four of these things to advance. Yep. So this isn't it. Like, the you know, Tampa yeah. is banged up. Victor Hedman. You know, the giant Swedish redwood tree of a defenseman um, didn't play, um, you know, in the later half of that game last night. Like, there's, there's a lot of questions around Tampa as well. Like, the Leafs do, like, they're not eliminated. Um, they just lost themselves a lot of goodwill and some faith from their, you know, faithful, those few who are remaining that you can call faithful. Um, like, they're not out of it by any stretch. What they've done is they've just, you know, heaped several spoonfuls more pressure on top of their shoulders.
2: Sean Fitzgerald with us, managing editor, feature writer with The Athletic. The Leafs losing game one. Uh, Fingers
5: crossed. Sean, thanks for the time. Good luck. Thank you very much with the uh, House Full of Bruins fans. All
0: right. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
2: All right. You might have heard uh, post-pandemic, we were having issues with pain medication and also baby formula. And apparently uh, both still an issue, specifically the baby formula, still in short supply and high demand. Canada has everything it needs to start producing. Uh, However, it just doesn't seem to be the case. Uh, Why are we not producing this product? Why is there a shortage of it? Dr. Sylvain Charlebois is with us is Professor of Food Distribution and Policy, Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University, and with us now. Thanks for the time, Sylvan. I hope all is well.
7: Yes, uh, I hope you guys are doing well also.
2: So far, so good. Uh, We see you on the news quite a bit, as this is a hot issue along with uh, rising food prices and such. Why is there a shortage, or why was there a, a shortage in the first place of baby formula? What happened?
7: Well... First of all, we don't make it. Uh, we don't make any of it in Canada. Uh, we do have one plant in Kingston that uh, makes the, that is designed to make baby formula, but it's owned by Chinese government, and uh, the intent is to export all of it to China. Uh, but uh, the economics of making baby formula in Canada aren't, aren't great, and that's why we import all, all of it. And we rely on uh, a few plants to, uh, to service the game market. And as soon as one plant goes down, which was the case with the Abbott plant in Michigan, well we notice and it's been going on for quite some time. And so it makes, it makes our country quite vulnerable and, and our parents uh, quite desperate.
2: Uh, why is it not viable for us to produce this in Canada, yet it's viable for China to produce it in Canada and ship it there? Uh,
7: is Isn't that an interesting question, is it? Yes. <laughs> Well, so first of all, to educate your listeners, uh, we do have a regime called supply management in Canada. So we basically manufacture what we need. Uh, we have a quota system to protect farmers. Uh, prices are set by the Cane Dairy Commission. To, so, so farmers get a fair price and they produce what we need. That's kind of the social contract that we've had for over 50 years in Canada. But it doesn't lead to a whole lot of innovation. That's the thing. So as soon as... Uh, the market needs something, something different. Uh, it doesn't adapt all that well. So, for example, if you're looking for organic milk, well, uh, there are quarters for organic milk, but it took a while to set up. Uh, Raw milk is illegal in Canada, of course, because it's. Well, some people say it's because of food safety. I, I tend to say, well, it's more about management and uh, and making sure that we're not cannibalizing the production of other uh, of other farmers. But really, at the end of the day, as soon as uh, we need a new product. It's it's hard to do anything. And uh, so uh, many companies have come to Canada to invest and they want to process our own milk only to discover that there are so many limitations with supply management because the idea is to is to produce milk the same exact way so farmers can get paid the same exact way and when there's a surplus of non-fat milk which exactly which is exactly what you would need to make baby formula well the system is not set up to recover uh, the mm. the non-fat milk because there's no well there's no market for it because supply magic doesn't get people to think about processing and markets supply magic gets people to think about supply and farmers and gnats it that is the problem uh
2: it sounded like a minute that you were talking about fossil fuel with regulations and we can't get anything built that's that you can say that for virtually every industry it seems in canada now uh let me ask you this question because i wasn't aware of this how long have the chinese been manufacturing producing baby formula in canada that we can't use because it's being sent to china how long has this been going on
7: Uh, So the the agreement was made in 2017. Now, my understanding is that the provincial (laughs) government in Ontario, where you are, taxpayers actually paid 24 – actually gave a grant of $24 million to uh, support the construction of the plant. In total, I think the plant uh, cost $338 million to build. Uh, It's a really state-of-the-art plant. Even the feds actually gave some money, but it, the, the amount was never disclosed. Now, it did actually work for a while, but to my understanding right now is that the plant is idle, but it is designed to actually manufacture baby formula. And in the deal in 2017, the Chinese government actually agreed to supply the Canadian market, but it never happened. Uh, wow,
2: is this going to change?
7: Where does this go? Because we, <laughs> it's, it's, you know, we,
2: it's, it's like, it's post, the,
7: you can't make this subcategory.
2: <laughs> absolutely. I mean, post pandemic, it's exposed a lot of this, uh, whether it's medication, whether it's formula, what have you. Uh, are, are we going to relook at this sort of uh, uh, restrictions, what have you, and and at least try to become somewhat self-sufficient?
7: Well, first of all, I think dairy farmers of Canada uh, needs to start to be honest with people. Uh, we do waste milk. Uh, you remember the 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 guy who actually dumped thirty thousand liters it, yeah. of milk on yeah. YouTube, uh, and and the dairy the the, the jerk reaction uh, by the dairy farmers were saying this is an isolated incident. The person is an idiot. He's incompetent. He shouldn't be wasting that kind of milk. Well, it's actually happening. We we waste. Millions of liters of milk. So dairy farmers need to be honest about that with the public, and then it would actually force them to think differently about waste and surpluses, which is why, if you look very carefully in the last federal budget, there's $333 million dedicated to research uh, for the dairy sector. That's code for saying, hey, dairy farmers, deal with your surpluses.
2: Wow. Dr. Sylvain Charlebaugh with us, Professor of Food Distribution and Policy, Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University, talking about baby formula, the shortage, and our inability to produce it here. Well, for this country, anyway. Uh, Sylvain, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure. You take care. As you may have heard, a uh, news conference yesterday, uh, the Ontario Science Centre going to be relocated down to uh, Toronto's waterfront as part of the Ontario Place Redevelopment. To find out more and what's in, what's out, what works, what doesn't work, Colin DeMello with us, Queen's Park Bureau Chief of Global News, and here now. Colin, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. So, Colin, what do we know? What don't we know? I, you know, because they were it was kind of vague. We weren't sure really what was going on. We heard lots of flashy uh, things here and there. But other than that, no real concrete uh, uh, plan per se. What do we know? What don't we know about this?
1: Well, I want people to visualize Ontario Place as it is, right? There's an east side, a west side, and a central portion of it. So the east side is going to be primarily uh, a public park, which has already been built, and a Live Nation concert venue, which would replace Budweiser Stage. It would be an all-seasons kind of concert venue. That's what the government said. On the western side of the park, that's where Therm is building an indoor water park slash spa. This is a you know a bit of a monstrosity, some people say. Some people like it. Some A lot of people don't. Um, And and this would be built by this private Scandinavian company around that spa would be a public beach, a marina, um, et cetera. So there is a lot of publicly accessible land there in the middle of it, though, on the western side of uh, Ontario Place would be this uh, this private spa in the middle, which is right now a giant parking lot. That's where we would see the new Ontario Science Centre. Now, the province says the current sign center is about uh, 500,000 square feet. The new sign center would be roughly about half that about 175,000, uh, sorry, 275,000 square feet. So it wouldn't be as big, but they're saying that it would still be, you know, in essence, the science center that everyone in this province knows and loves and and, t- and takes their kids to. So that is what the province is kind of unveiling now as their grand vision for the future of Ontario Place, which shovels in some cases for the science center, uh, set to hit the ground sometime in 2025, according to the the government
2: um it seems that the spa is what's shooting up the red flag for lots of people so what can you tell us about that space you said a water park's in there which is sort of a little different than when you think of a spa uh, but what can you tell us about that part of the complex
1: yeah i think a lot of people Uh, you know, don't quite know or understand exactly what this is. And, you know, even though we've been trying to determine or ascertain exactly what this thing is going to look like, it's gone through multiple iterations, which which makes it a bit difficult. What we do know from some of their mock-ups and designs is There are indoor water slides. There are multiple pools uh, that people can go to. There are, um, you know, palm trees inside and all of their sketches show men and women and sometimes children in in bathing suits, but also in robes. There is a Mm. spa component to this. And they said that the the main um, entry point uh, to the Therm Spa will also be publicly accessible. So they'll put a restaurant in there so you can go kind of to the lobby and, and partake in whatever things that might be in the lobby but if you want to go further on uh you would have to you would have to pay a price and we don't really know what it is. I mean, uh, you know, a lot of families are familiar with water parks, outdoor water parks uh, yeah. predominantly. If you go to a Great Wolf Lodge, you might know what an indoor water park looks like and they're saying that this is kind of that but also kind of not that. So it's really tough I think for a lot of us to wrap our heads around exactly what this is. Uh, but the point is is that it's going to be private, not public. Now, Ontario Place, you had to pay an entry fee to get in. Uh, but that entry fee was, you know, in some cases, a dollar when it first started. So it wasn't as onerous as what what a private spa could be. So I think a lot of people are kind of looking at this saying this is public land that, you know, some are arguing it should be public park space or publicly accessible in in every facet, uh, not a private spa for, you know, s- some individuals who might be able to afford it and and, and want to use it.
2: Uh, is do we know if any of this land is being sold? Like, will this land be sold to that private developer spa, or is this all just still leased through the government of Ontario?
1: All of it is going to be leased. And we know mm. right now that these are multi year leases. We're still working to figure out the exact terms of those contracts. Neither the government nor a Therm or anyone else will actually say. But we know that these are multi year leases uh, with, uh, you know, Live Nation and with Therm to build these things. And the province today had revealed to us that if they back out of the deal with Therm, There are some consequences, potentially financial consequences here. There may have to be they may have to pay a penalty. And I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, they've signed this contract and they're going full steam ahead uh, to build this very futuristic looking spa on the on the western portion of Ontario place.
2: Uh, I'm guessing you've seen a lot of this and, of course, uh, delved into it. What are your thoughts? I mean, I know you're not supposed to editorialize, but
1: as you see this, what comes to mind? Well, I can tell you that yesterday we had the opportunity to go down to Ontario Place, right? This announcement was being made. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I don't have the same kind of nostalgia connection that a lot of people have with Ontario Place. A lot of people have brought their their kids and have gone there and have really fond childhood memories from Ontario Place. What it is today isn't wasn't it, what it was back in its heyday, right? Yeah. Right now, if you go to it, a lot of it is is very gray looking, very concrete looking, not quite accessible by the public. It's, you know, the, the, the features that are still there are are really hidden behind a lot of parking lots. And it's not really the most accessible spot either. There isn't really direct transit that goes there. There is a go station across the street from it. You know, I've never taken my family to Ontario Place, I, I'm not sure. I'm well, not it's, been clo- part, it's been close. It's been close. It's been,
2: it's been close since like 2012 other than the bud stage though, hasn't it?
1: Right. But, but like to yeah. the actual location itself, because yeah. they do do some winter activities. There are some, sometimes I believe there's like an, um, an, an electronic dance music festival, uh, which we've wanted to go to, but I haven't had the chance to yet, but I mean, there, there are some attractions there, Yeah. But, but it's, it's, it's a destination for event specific sites. And I think what the government is trying to turn this into is, is a, year round destination for families, for individuals, if you want to go and show a concert, if you want to go to a beach, if you want to do a variety of things, I think, you know, at its at its core, the approach that they have here might be pure, right? They want to revitalize what is a, a public space. It's just the way the government is going about it, right? Not consulting on the future of the Ontario Science Centre, not really involving the public in, in having a, a private spa on this site. I think that's what's got a lot of people really verklempt. And the and the problem is, is that it's now become a Toronto mayoral election talking point, an issue, something to fight over. And, and it's pitted some of these candidates against Doug Ford. So this is going to be a very divisive issue, but – you know, listen, the the Ford government is here until 2026. And as long as shovels start going in the ground before 2026, they're in the clear because no future government is going to then tear up a contract for something that's already being constructed and then have to pay a huge bill at the end of it. That's how governments kind of bind the hands of future governments in contracts like these
2: colin DeMello with us queens park bureau chief for global news make sure you're watching global uh, tonight for more on all of this science center and ontario place becoming one colin thanks for the time be well thanks so much for having me
0: you're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
2: All right, the article from Sarah Ritchie, Canadian Press, which you can find on the Global News website. Freeland accused of being smug, clueless after Disney Plus comment. It goes on to say, once upon a time, Chrystia Freeland attempted to relay Canadians' cost of living concerns with a personal antidote. It did not produce a fairy tale ending. Quote, I personally, as a mother and wife, look carefully at my credit card bill once a month. And last Sunday, I said... Said to the kids, you're older now, you don't watch Disney anymore, let's cut the Disney Plus subscription, Freeland told Global News in an interview that aired on the West Block with Mercedes Stevenson back in November. She went on to say, quote, I believe that I need to take exactly the same approach with the federal government's finances because that's the money of Canadians. To talk more about all of this, Sarah Ritchie, reporter with the Parliamentary Bureau with the Canadian Press and here now. Sarah, thanks for the time. Hope you're well.
8: Hi, yeah, I'm well. Hope you are too.
2: So far, so good. So Sarah, uh, you went in to see what the response was to these comments. What did you do? How did you find out this information?
8: Oh, so this is through access to information. You can submit requests. I mean, anybody can do this. Media does it mm-hmm. a lot. Uh, submit a request for information to uh, the finance office to say, you know, what was the reaction and what kind of conversations were happening internally um, in the couple of days after that comment? Because I don't know about you, but I remember uh, back in November when this comment was made, it was sort of all anybody was talking about for a few days, yeah. um, online at least. And, you know, Twitter's an echo chamber. So I wanted to know kind of what what sort of responses, you know, the average Canadian was was sending to the finance minister about it?
2: So, what did you find out? What was the reaction?
8: Uh, I mean, it was almost universally negative. There were a lot of people who were who were, I think, quite offended by the minister's comments and just by the way that she delivered them. You know, pointing out that. On a a cabinet minister's salary of you know two hundred and eighty plus thousand dollars a year, she's not really worried about being able to pay that thirteen dollars a month for Disney Plus. And I, I think, just generally speaking, most people felt like it really missed the mark, and and that she was not actually relating to people's concerns about the cost of living crisis. You know, there was. Um, There was one woman in particular that that her email stood out to me. She wrote to the minister to say she's a single mom. She's on disability. She has a 10 year old. She says sometimes she goes a couple of days without eating just to make sure that he doesn't have to go without eating. And she said, you know, this just is a slap in the face to the people who are actually struggling. Um, And she encouraged the minister to think before she speaks.
2: Um, obviously when she brought this up, uh, this antidote, uh, trying to relate to Canadians, why didn't it connect?
8: Well, I think, you know, in the, in the context of what she was saying, what, it sounded to me like the minister was trying to sort of relate household finance uh, management with managing, you know, a a multi-billion dollar budget of the government. Mm -hmm. And she was talking about um, the moves that the government was making at the time, just after the fall economic statement, they had announced they were going to cut billions of dollars in government spending without cutting services. And so the question was sort of, you know, how are you planning to do that? And she was trying to illustrate, you know, there are always efficiencies, there are always things you can cut that you don't need, or at least, I think that's what she was trying to say. Um, But I I think that, you know, given where people are at and given the pressures that so many Canadians are under right now and have been for, you know, over a year with inflation and the rising cost of living and groceries are getting so expensive and a lot of people are genuinely struggling. And I think hearing the minister say, you know, oh yeah, we cut Disney Plus. It it just Hmm. felt to a lot of people like, you know, she just doesn't get it, I think. And I know, you know, for me, when I when I heard it, I kind of thought, oh, I hope like I, I feel like a lot of people are going to take this badly because it just it's not really relatable. Her situation isn't really relatable to the average Canadian. So so the comparison that maybe she was trying for, I don't think it it hit the mark at all.
2: Was there a lot of people who reacted to this? Did they get a lot of feedback?
8: Yeah, overall, there was a lot of feedback. Um, so the the minister's um You know, office does regular media monitoring. And so one of the things that they do is they sort of take a look at how did the minister's uh, series of Sunday interviews with with the Sunday political shows go and and what were people talking about? And so they did a, a scan of that. Um, and they found over two days, there'd been 13,000 mentions of Freeland and Disney plus, and that most of the comments were negative. So that was, uh, I think a cause for concern, or it seemed to be a cause for concern. And in, in just the tone of the emails, um, that were there about, you know, the fact that she was trying to talk about the fall economic statement. And this is why I think, you know, the story actually matters is because, um, you know, people are outraged by a lot of things a lot of the time, and they send a lot of grumpy emails, I'm sure, to mm. uh, federal officials. But the reality is the minister was trying to talk about the fall economic statement and what the government was doing to try to help people. And the only thing that I think people really remembered out of those conversations was this sort of awkward comment that that really made people very frustrated.
2: What was the government reaction to this backlash? Um I, I don't think she walked anything back, did she? Did she even comment about this afterwards?
8: So she did, actually the the day after, so that was the Monday, she was asked about it in a, a press conference and she did respond and she said um, you know, that she recognizes she's really a very privileged person and that it's, you know, it's not people like her who have federal government salaries that are really struggling right now. And she recognizes that that's not who, um, you know, is, is facing these difficult issues. I noticed, though in listening back to that um, while I was putting the story together that she didn't apologize and she didn't say I was wrong or anything like that. So she, she did say, you know, I'm really privileged and I recognize I make a lot more money than a lot of people and that kind of thing. Um, and I asked her office this week just to see if, if she'd ever written back to any of these people, because some of the letters were quite heartfelt. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I asked them, you know, did she respond? Did she write back? What kind of reaction did she have to getting all of this uh, reaction from the public, and and they didn't answer uh, any of my questions. They just sort of pointed me back to that press conference on November seventh.
2: Are you surprised that this had the legs that it did, or,
9: or does well?
8: I'm, I'm surprised that it has the legs it does today. Um, yeah. It seems like it's it's been read by quite a lot of people today. Um, no, I'm not really because I I think one of the problems that this government continues to face is the notion that maybe they're a little out of touch with the day-to-day realities of Canadians. And I think you see that, you know, the Conservatives kind of hone in on that one a lot with with the Prime Minister in particular. He, you know, spent $6,000 a night to stay in yeah. a, a hotel in London for the Queen's funeral. These are things that are out of reach and not reality for most Canadians. And I think, Um, When it comes to making decisions about the federal budget and who you're going to help and how you're going to deliver that help to people, um, people want to know that the folks making those decisions actually understand, that they get it, that they feel it. Um, And it's really hard because when you get elected and you come be an MP in Ottawa, you do make a lot more money than the average Canadian does. And so I think um, that's one of the constant criticisms, though, of this liberal government, and it has been for quite some time, is that they're just not really in touch with people's concerns necessarily um, and therefore maybe not reaching them in the way that they need to with the help.
2: Sarah Ritchie with us, reporter with the Parliamentary Bureau, Canadian Press commenting, uh, did a story on the Disney Plus comments of Christia Freeland and still backlash from that. Sarah, thanks for the time. Great reporting. Be well.
8: Thanks so much for having me, Scott.
0: If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve
1: into the issue until he is.
0: You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML.
2: So were you watching uh, the Leafs lose last night? Or uh, any playoff hockey or any sport? for that matter uh... as you may or may not know online gaming is now legal in ontario uh... and you know i have no problem with that i understand that if you're into that sort of thing you just do it off of u.s sites anyway So uh, now uh, it is available in Ontario. Uh, I have no problem with that. I'm not a big gambler. I'm way too cheap for that. Uh, But I certainly understand those that do. I have friends that are totally into it. And I have no skin in the game. I couldn't give a rat's rear end either way, whether you're betting on games or not. Or how you're betting on games, for that matter. Um, But when I'm watching sports and the gambling aspect of it is as prevalent as the sport itself... Or the commentating on the sport itself, uh, then I got a problem with it. And we, we first noticed this, uh, almost immediately when, uh, gaming was allowed and especially during, uh, the latter part of the NHL season and the playoffs that have now started. Um, you know, you wanna, you wanna have a gaming site, beauty, buy your 30 second commercial, air it with the donuts and the car commercials and everything else, and we're fine. But what I'm really, Cranky about, and I think a lot of people are, is how much the aspect of gambling or the services have woven their way into the actual programming of the sport. So it's not like it's just a commercial, and then we're coming back to Ron McLean. It's they're interviewing guys, talking them about, talking to them about the spread or this or that or the other, and all of a sudden, these people who are involved in gambling are a part of the sports broadcast. Uh, to me. That's going a little too far. I love hearing commentator, uh, commentation or commentators speak about the sport and the people who are in it and whatever. But I don't want to know. I don't, I don't give a damn who, what the odds are. Um, because I'm not in Vegas. I'm in my living room watching a sport. Uh, to talk more about all of this, Tim DeWurst is with us, professor, senior research fellow, marketing, public policy, department of marketing and consumer studies, University of Guelph and with us now. Tim, thanks for the time. I hope you're well.
9: I am. Thanks.
2: Tim, Tim be am, I, am I being a crotchety old guy on this? Or, you know, I mean, it, like I have no problem who wants to buy ads on a sports broadcast, but it seems now this has become interwoven as part of the actual presentation.
9: Yeah, that's very accurate. Of we're just being bombarded with advertising and promotion. So it's not just a 30-second, you know, TV commercial, you know, during a break of play, but it's now being integrated into the broadcast and programming, whether it's the pre-game show, intermission discussion, or even in-game. And uh, yeah, just I think a lot of people are just getting fed up that they're bombarded with ads and just uh, overwhelmed by it.
2: Uh, it just seems, you know, you give an inch, uh, they'll take a mile. I mean, it's money, it's monetary, and again, I have no problems with whoever wants to buy an ad and advertise, because I can go to the fridge uh, when that's all going on. Um, how did it get to the point where it is and became so integrated? It's not like we see this with any other industry.
9: Well, I mean, it's interesting of, I guess, there just is a lack lack of regulation, it seems, and uh, yeah. there's a lot of revenue potential. So broadcasters, sports leagues, athletes and celebrities, you know, they've all been with opportunities, I guess, to generate incredible revenue. Um, But there are a lot of ethical questions about, uh, you know, just looking beyond just uh, making more money. And uh, it, is, it isn't just your everyday behavior or product. It is something that's been classified as an addictive disorder, much like uh, nicotine or tobacco and opioids and, and cannabis. And so you would think that uh, its advertising would be more stringently regulated like some of those other product uh, categories that I've just mentioned. Do you think it's a matter of time before it is, Tim? Uh, I think it is. There's increasing pressure that uh, a lot more regulation is needed and uh, the Alcohol and Gaming Commission of Ontario has just announced uh, a proposal and they're hearing consultations about the matter but uh, no longer allowing uh, you know, sports stars to be in advertising but uh, their jurisdiction is Ontario so it would still persist uh, beyond Ontario. Uh, again,
2: I, I, you know, I don't have any problem with the ads. Maybe because that, that's I'm in the business, and and that's how we make our money. Uh, I don't even have a problem with Wayne Gretzky getting up there and hawking this stuff, even though he's probably worth more than any of us, uh, all of us combined. But what I have a real problem with with is get them out of the broadcast, get them out of the show. It's like you know, be like watching a sitcom, and all of a sudden a betting guy comes in. Um, again, I think there's what's what's happened here is we haven't separated the ads from the actual show or program or sports event
9: yeah i think that's very accurate and uh you know i guess there's a few levels that uh many people share your concern that, that you know and myself included in that category where it's just overwhelming and being bombarded and how it's integrated into the programming that's uh, become very frustrating um, but beyond that uh you know there's there's concern about uh you know, the sports betting ads appeal to young people. And so when they see their heroes like Connor McDavid and Austin Matthews endorsing these products, uh, those are heroes, you know, people that uh, young people look up to and idolize. And so there's also concern about that, about normalizing, uh, you know, a behavior among young people. Good point. Uh, Where do you think this is going, Tim? Well, I think there's going to be more and more pressure for, you know, more stringent regulation. Um, and uh, I, I think there's, you know, there, there needs to be a lot more stringent regulation just so that uh, there is a not uh, advertising reaching and appealing to youth as we're currently seeing. All right, Tim DeWurst with us, professor, senior research fellow in marketing and public policy
2: uh, with the University of Guelph, talking about uh, gambling. Not so much the gambling itself, but its infiltration into the shows we're watching beyond a 30 or 60 second commercial. Tim, thanks for the time. Be well.
0: Uh, thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
2: All right, as it stands now, a third of the public service, uh, federal public service, is on strike. Uh, And uh, it's about 155,000 public servants and lots of demonstration going on in Ottawa today. Sounded a little bit like a freedom uh, convoy with all the uh, horns blowing and such. Uh, What is going on? What are the main issues? How do we move forward on all of this? Dr. Ian Lee, with his associate professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, he is is with us now Ian? thanks for the time i hope you're well
10: uh yes i am thanks very much scott
2: so as i uh between commercials there where the news was on or sorry between commercials there i was watching uh my screen and a interview with the leader of the union uh yeah. who, who of course is involved in the strike uh federal strike and uh he was saying that we should all support this because it represses wages for all of us if we give them a raise it will trickle down to the rest of us what are your thoughts on
10: that You know, I'm very conflicted on this and I'll be very frank. I am conflicted because on the one hand, um, they have fallen behind, but we have all fallen behind on on inflation because uh, the inflation genie was let out of the bottle by Trudeau, by Mr. Trudeau. I've said this many, many times on your show and on other programs. They uh, put far, far, far too much stimulus into the system to way more uh, to far more than the sixteen percent unemployed. Many, many people got uh, help who should not have been helped. Corporations that were making large amounts of money, a lot of profitability were getting all kinds of money. and they they let the inflation genie out of the bottle. Between the fiscal stimulus and driving the interest rates down to an unprecedented level, uh, lower than the Depression, lower than the uh, Second World War. So I'm sympathetic. At the same time, and here's the but coming um, the Government of Canada is the largest employer in Canada, over 500,000 employees, dwarfs any other employer. And they truly are a trend setting organization, partly because they're so large and partly because it is the government of Canada. And so they uh, set precedents for provincial government, uh, collective bargaining, municipal government, and of course the private sector. And when you look at what others are saying outside of this who don't have a dog in the hunt, I'm talking about people outside of the government, outside of the union, um, you know, the Canadian Chamber of Commerce and other similar organizations. There are, and Globe and Mail, for goodness sake, in that op-ed yesterday are saying, hold the line. Now, just very quickly, Scott, um, I just want to point out that the gap is not that great. Uh, and I don't want to deal with the CRA because that's a, the Canada Revenue Agency employees um, who are on strike, That that's a different kettle of fish. And it's, it's, um, it's, I'll, I'll set that aside. The, um, the main uh, body of uh, PSAC employees, PSAC, um, are demanding 4.5% per year. while well, the government upped its offer from 2% to 3%, I believe it was yesterday morning. So the gap between the two of them, and this has been acknowledged by the president of PSAC, is not that great. It's 1.5% gap or difference between what PSAC is demanding for the majority of their members and what the government of Canada is offering. So I think that they can strike a deal and fairly quickly. On the, from what I've read and heard, from various people and read uh, in different media and different uh, blogs and that sort of thing. Um, The, the, it's a much more difficult issue on remote work uh, for reasons I don't completely understand uh, because I don't think most people outside of Ottawa uh, could care less about that. They care mm. about, you know, inflation. They care about uh, huge wage uh, agreements. But uh, on the remote work, I still think that there's room uh, to compromise. So, I mean, uh, and I one final thought, uh, the, the, the PSAC members are very, very committed. So, uh, if the government thinks that they're going to break the strike just by wearing them out, I think they are, are going to discover something. Uh, they're going to discover they're wrong. Uh, Many have
2: said that the government has bloated, increased in size substantially over the last few years. How does that change the discussion or does it?
10: Um, I don't think it does too much. They have bloated. I mean, the uh, PBO has the numbers out. So does the Fraser Institute. I believe the number is a 38% increase. I mean, uh, Harper downsized the, uh, Chrétien downsized the government. I wrote a paper on this by 75,000 public service. They laid them off in the mid nineties. Harper uh, did some downsizing. So the government was very lean and mean uh, throughout that period from Chrétien through Harper. what Mr. Trudeau has done in the since he came to power, what eight or nine years ago, is he's a, a really grown the expanded the size of the public service. Why? I'm I'm skeptical that it's that necessary because during that same period in the last 10 years, they've digitized uh, the entire public service. And my point being is, is that when you digitize, you get much greater efficiency gains and you don't need as many people because you're just not pushing physical paper and physical files as much. So I think that Mr. Trudeau can be criticized on that ground uh, as well
2: uh how does the prime minister balance this those are after all for the most part his people i mean so how do you balance this it's the he's uh, he's think, sort of he's sort of on this
10: uh, on his own is he on his own i think he's between a very hard rock and an even very harder place to use that old cliche um uh, uh, people may not realize this outside of ottawa if you're inside ottawa you know this uh all the mps in ottawa uh, the national capital region, Ottawa and Gatineau. Remember, Gatineau is an important part of the national capital. That's the Quebec side of the national capital. Every last MP is a liberal MP, save and accept one. And his name would be Pierre Paulyave, <laughs> Ottawa South Nepean. Ottawa South Manitik, I should say. So you have, uh, and the public services, if you look at the record, the historical record, the public service is historically voted liberal, literally going back to the turn of the 19th, uh, the 20th century. I did do the research on this for a paper I did. And most of the writings in Ottawa voted liberal forever and ever, including the Ottawa Vanier writing, which is the home of Mona Fortier, who is the president of the treasury board. And they are the employer of the public service negotiating with the Public Service Commission. So she and the people from Ottawa know how critical this is uh, if they want to retain all those seats in the next election. And they don't have, they're not doing well in the polls. We all know that. They cannot afford to lose two or four or five or six of those uh, seats. And the preponderance why I'm talking about that, the majority of the voters in Ottawa are public servants. They are the single largest uh, group a classification occupational group in the city of Ottawa. I mean, they dwarf all other employers. And so my point being, these are voters these are voters in 13 or so ridings, and they will remember this. So he's got to be very careful not to alienate the public servants uh, too much. On the other hand, if he if he uh, uh, tries to buy industrial peace with a very generous wage increase, he's going to be, I think, just attacked mercilessly. And not just by Pierre Polyev, by business groups across the country, even premiers who will say that, look, you have folded the tent on fighting inflation and you have set a dangerous precedent. So he's trying to walk a very, very, very tight rope between on the one hand, not giving a wage increase that will be seen as excessively inflationary. On the other hand, not alienating these voters, the public servants who are the largest single voting group in the city of Ottawa. Dr. Ian Lee with us,
2: associate professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, talking about the federal public service strike. Ian, as always, thanks for the time. Be well.
10: My pleasure, Scott. Thank you.
2: All right, you might remember uh, the brouhaha around the Halton teacher teaching at Oakville Trafalgar School, uh, wearing giant prosthetic breasts, uh, nipples pointing out the whole nine yards. I'm sure you saw uh, the pictures and um, and just the inability for the Halton School Board to even get a handle on this in any way, uh, which has led to uh, bomb threats and all sorts of disruptions uh, around the school and such, all to protect a teacher rather than the students or even the other teachers some sort of dress code. Now, uh, the board has revised its professionalism policy after uh, people wanted, to say, you know, the teachers to have the same sort of professionalism as they order the students to. Uh, and they ordered a, a, uh, uh, um, uh, a survey, 8,500 8, community members all on this. And at the end of the day, it's almost identical to the previous one, really not addressing any of this, further punting it down the road and not solving Solving the problem. What's aggravating about this is what's going on at Halden is also going on in Peel, the province recently supervising that board because of racist allegations. We go back to the York District School Board, York Region District School Board, who back at the time of the Queen's funeral, a historic moment, a teachable moment, sent a memo out to all its teachers telling people not to even mention the Queen's funeral because uh, they thought it might traumatize students. There's three. Three examples of boards that have completely lost touch with the members they are supposed to serve. How do we raise that bar? Let's bring in Larry DeAnne, former mayor of the city of Hamilton and former principal at Oakville Trafalgar, uh, Trafalgar High School and is with us now. Larry, thanks for the time. I hope you're well
3: i am very well scott nice to talk to you uh
2: your thoughts uh this policy came out everybody's saying it's not much different than the old one why bother Ooh, this just seems an exercise in futility larry
3: well let me point out first of all that um i retired from uh from education as a principal um oh, well gosh it's over 20 years ago now How uh, mm. quickly time flies when you're having fun and uh, and the landscape in education has changed f- tremendously. Um, yeah. And I yeah. would say not for the better. Um, although when I visit schools, and I do still visit schools, um, I see happy kids, uh, happy teachers, uh, engagement uh, in a positive way, uh, and I'm sure good things are happening. However, at the political end, and I'm talking about at the provincial end, uh, where there's lack of leadership around some of these issues, And certainly it seems that the Board of Education and with the politicians, uh, they've gone uh, somewhat bonkers and and have forgotten that their primary primary duty is to educate those kids that come through the doors, to provide the resources, to provide the policies, to provide the direction that allows kids to learn. Because that's what education is all about, right? So having said that as a backdrop, it seems as if uh, this board is careening from from um uh, controversy to controversy and rather than uh, being strong in in terms of providing some good leadership that would put an end to this it seems as if they're simply maintaining it by kicking it down the road and that's just too bad
2: What, what do you think is going to happen here, Larry? Where is this going? Because we're, we're hearing that, uh, Leche said he wants more control over the boards. I gave you three examples at Peel, York, and Halton, where it, it you know, the, it, it's a very similar situation, but, but a different scenario. Um, what do we have to do to raise the bar of school boards and electric and elected trustees? Cause it seems that they've gone off on their own little mission.
3: Yeah, so, so uh, you know, the province and the minister of education, uh, whom I hope to meet on Monday, by the way, because we're taking some students to Queen pa- Queen's Park, students from overseas who are visiting some schools here um, and uh, and also are going to be visiting Queen's Park. So I hope to, uh, to meet him. Um, it, 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 you know, the clarity from the province is not there. They're, they're leaving it up to the school boards to come up with policies. They're saying, we don't like what you're doing but they're not providing clear enough direction. And I'm thinking of this incident specifically. They're leaving it out to the school boards, and the school boards are floundering because they feel, and I think this is not a bad feeling, that they have to respect people's rights, uh, people's rights to expressions, you know, that this whole gender issue has become so fluid, and, 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 and people want to accept that and not be draconian about things. But, again, I come back to the essential point I made before. When, when someone's right to express him or herself in the way that they dress interferes with their primary job, which is to teach students. And I would say that the great, that, that this individual at Oakville Travolta High School became a spectacle, whether that person wanted to or not, did with some very horrendous consequences, protests, bomb threats and all of that stuff then that person was not able to do their job in teaching kids so the school and the school board should have stepped right in immediately and taken that principal that that person out of that setting and put that person somewhere else to do some other kind of job away from kids until the issue was resolved in some uh, proper way but rather than doing that the first response by the school was we need to respect her rights. The response by the board was we need to respect her rights. And the only rights that were not being respected were those of the students who were caught up in this drama not of their own making. And that's the concern, isn't it? So, gosh, grow some people, take a position, and, and do what's right for kids because that's what game you're in, the education of students
2: you were saying that it's up to the government to to, to to do more but many have said the direction and the policy is already there it's the board is not doing its job I mean uh, w- what do you need and again that's why they were sent back to, to to revise this professionalism policy I mean how 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 much more plain can we be it's pretty obvious. <coughs>
3: Yeah. So, so uh, yes. And, and I, have said that, that uh, at least, and look, I'm an outsider looking in, mm-hmm. I just read what's in the papers. I don't have any inside information and I'm sure that they're the leadership of the Halton public school board. Uh, it means well and they're professional and they're expert, uh, and all of that, just as they were when I was involved in the school board. However, they've missed the boat. I mean, I, I say this with, with some chagrin and some respect uh, Do you respect the people in positions having to make tough decisions? But they've let this issue fester. Now, how long have we been talking about this? Yeah, since September. It's, it they started in September. Fester, yeah. and when things fester, they don't resolve themselves. They tend to become worse. And it seems, at least from what I'm reading in the paper, that the parents are still agitated, mm-hmm. and uh, they've not resolved the issue in, in a in a in a in a, a positive way. So there's a policy coming down. I have no idea what the policy says, but if if the concerns are to be believed, it seems to say what it's always said, which has created or allowed this problem to, to exist. So, uh, you know, the, the school board really needs to take a long, hard look at this. And I understand. I understand this is not easy to say because you're talking about an individual and an individual's right to, to express herself, and legislation has changed around that. But when that person's rights supersedes students' rights not to be involved in a drama that takes away from their education, I'm gonna err on the side of teaching kids rather than on the side of the person. And then take whatever lumps might come my way, by the way, if, if that needs to happen. Hmm. Uh, but But you need to protect students' education. And look, I've been in this school, I was principal of the school for five years, a great school, great supportive community, uh, an advantage school, really, in so many ways, uh, and to see it be the center of something that this detracts rather than um, than adds to the education of the students is, is very, very troubling.
2: Larry Diani with us, former mayor, of city of Hamilton, and former principal at Oakville Trafalgar High School. Larry, as always, thanks so much for the time and be
0: well. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
2: This has just moved at uh, 539 today from the Washington Post. Uh, Trudeau told NATO that Canada will never meet its spending goal. The discord leak shows. Uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, this is out of the Washington uh, Post. Uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has told NATO officials privately that Canada will never meet the military alliance's defense spending target according to a leaked secret Pentagon assessment obtained by the Washington Post. The documents anonymous authors say Canada's widespread military deficiencies are are harming ties with security partners and allies. Uh, the document, which was not, had not been previously reported on says, enduring defense shortfalls led the Canadian Armed Forces to assess in February. It could not conduct a major operation while simultaneously maintaining its NATO battle group leadership in Latvia to, uh, aid Ukraine. So there it is. The post, the, uh, the headline out of the National Post just moved. Uh, so you probably hear more about it to, uh, tomorrow. Trudeau told NATO that Canada will never uh, meet its spending goal. So um, there you go. Uh, but that was a leak from the Pentagon. That came out with the Pentagon leaks. It's not something that uh, we're going to hear about it, unless, of course, Sam Cooper gets on it a little later on from Global News. We'll see. All right, let's move on. It is Scott Radley here, host of the Scott Radley Show, columnist with your Hamilton Spectator,
4: and is coming up after the 6 o'clock news. Scott, hope you're doing well today. I am well. And I, I you said National Post. I think you meant Washington Post, right? That's the Washington did, oh, Post. Oh, sorry. I said Washington Post. Did you? I was, okay. Oh, sorry. It, I thought oh, maybe way. I said National Post. Maybe either I did. way. It's the paper no. of Woodward and Bernstein. So yes. even if the people who were mad at Sam Cooper or other papers for taking uh, you know anonymous sources, yes. well, maybe with the Washington Post, remember. Remember who talked to the, the Washington Post once upon a time for Watergate? Deep throat. An anonymous yes. source brought down the yeah. White House. So, yeah. it's um, It look, was the Washington if, Post, if yes. We, we don't have any money left because climate change, Scott, is the existential crisis that we must spend all of our money on. So things like Ukraine and China invading Taiwan potentially and whatever, that, that's – come on. We don't need money for that.
2: <sighs> don't get me started. All right. So I'm watching the leaves last night fall to the ground. <laughs> Exactly. How embarrassing. Like, you're getting booed after the first period. What the heck does that say? But something that I've been meaning to talk to you about and and bring up, and we did talk about it in a segment on the show today, and my family has noticed this, Um, and, and, you know, I couldn't give a rat's rear end about gambling. I'm way too cheap to gamble, Uh, and I have no problem with others that do. I have no problem with ads being, uh, you know, right next to the McDonald's ad and the car ad and the whatever ad, the shoe store ad, um, that there are ads for gambling sites. Have no problem with that. But what really bothers me is how gambling has taken over the show itself. So instead of just a commercial, and we'll be back after this, it's like we're going to gam- gambling references all through the, the program. Uh, the commentators are talking about what the spread is, and what this is, and what that is. And again, I got no problem with any industry wanting to buy ads on any sort of broadcast, but To incorporate it into part of the
4: show like it's part of the game, I don't know. Is it me? Uh, That, to me, and I'm not a gambler, so maybe I'm not the right person to ask about this. To me, that is an immediate either channel change time or time to go and make a sandwich or go to the bathroom. Like Literally, as soon as I see it... I tune out honestly every but, time. But
2: you know what? That's you know, it, providing it's during a commercial set or a stop set, as we call it, or an, a, a group of ads, that's great because I got a minute or two to go to the washroom or go to the fridge. But this is built right into the broadcast. Ron McLean or whoever will throw to somebody who gives us the spread. It's part of the show. Yeah. It's not an ad. It's product placement. And you name me another industry that
4: has so much power. Well, so two things. First of all, um, the other thing I will do when that stuff, even if it's brought into the show, if I start to lose interest, I've always got my phone nearby. I can play a quick Mm. game of Candy Crush to distract myself (laughs) when that's going on. But uh, (laughs) look, one of the things that I've been thinking recently about this is that we are at the very early days of this. I mean, it only only became legal, the single game betting in Ontario six months ago, eight months ago, something like that. I really do believe, and I could be proven wrong on this one, but I really do believe that like so many other things, you know, when it was drinking or when it was cigarettes or whatever else, there is going to come a time when there is going to be backlash against this because we're going to see many people facing gambling addictions. Mm. And I'm not blaming the companies for their gambling addiction, right? I'm not saying that the companies that are advertising are the cause of a gambling addiction. But I think what we're going to see is people saying this stuff should not be on there any more than cigarette ads should be on there. Or Mm. when we've cut back on booze ads, although some of those still exist, um, I, I just think there's going to be the pendulum is going to balance out at some point because there will be blowback. We're way too early in this whole process still to see what the real impact is going to be on this, especially because I think that a lot, and I, again, I could be wrong on this. I don't have the stats in front of me, but I think a lot of the people who are being captured in this single game betting stuff are young people. Yeah. It's not people like you and me. It's young people. And I think that that's going to take some time to work through the system and see what happens. Just like I think we're going to have, if not now, in a few years, we're going to have some issues with the legalization of cannabis. And people will say, oh, you're being, you know, reefer madness. No, I'm not. I'm saying these things always, no matter what it is, whatever vice it is, they always end up with an unexpected consequence at some point. Again, ads are one thing. You want to buy a commercial, put it in with the KFC
2: ad, that's great. But to have it invade the product, the planning, the show,
4: the game... That's where, to me, it goes too far. It would almost be like having, uh, you know, Subway is sponsoring yeah. Hockey Night in Canada, and so halfway through the intermission, Ron the picks up a yeah. sub and starts chewing <laughs> on a sub. <laughs> and you know, oh, you this go. is this this uh, this Meatball Tuesday yeah. special. Man, what this you- is delicious from Subway. Look at the camera, and give the Don Cherry <laughs> thumbs up, and now back to the program. After I s- wipe the sauce off my mouth, <laughs> uh, it, it, you're right. I mean, it is it, it. This is the modern day product placement. You know, back in the day, we used to have cigarettes, as I say, or whatever else in movies. And we still do. That's what this is.
2: Scott Radley, host of The Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator coming up next after the 6 o'clock news. As always, thanks, Scott. Have a great show. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com.
2: That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer.
3: On this bit with the getting the people back into the offices in Ottawa or in Toronto, a lot of times these it's going to cost the workers extra money for transportation. It's going to cost them extra money for their wear and tear on their vehicles, but the business community is asking the uh, workers to get back into the offices in the, in the town centers so that they can come down and buy their coffee breaks and their lunches and keep the small businesses going. I thank you very much, and this was Tony LeBlanc.